Rob Everett's leaving the FMA after seven years as the chief executive, and his last interview is with us on Good Returns TV. Rob, thanks for joining us and letting us uh, use your boardroom since we can't get to Auckland. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's been interesting times for you at the FMA. It's gone through quite a long journey. One of the things I remember is when you started and you took on the job, you said it was really important for you to support financial advisors, and that's something that you told the board when you yeah. took on the job. So how well do you think you've done that in the last <laughs> seven years? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm impressed that you remember that. Um, it, it was interesting because even on the way in the door, already MB had decided to review the Financial Advisors Act mm. and how all of that was put in place. And I think I remember saying to a number of people at the time, that the bit of the regime I didn't understand when I came in was the financial advice piece because mm. it looked incredibly complicated. So I think it has been difficult to navigate. Um, I do think the changes that Fizzler is bringing in will help at least simplify the structure for the end user, which mm -hmm. obviously is the, the key issue. And I think particularly over the last couple of years, we've probably got a better relationship with the industry than we have traditionally had. And that's because, you know, we've put some serious engagement to talking to the industry and helping them through the Fizzler process. So I think, um, you know, it's been hard yards because that was the first piece of kind of license regulation that the FMA was dealing with when, when, mm. when I arrived for the advisors. Um, I think we got it to a reasonably good place and now it's changed again. Yeah. Um, and I think it will take a while to get the newly regulated sectors and newly regulated pieces to where we got the AFA population. Um, but I, I think we feel more confident now that it can be done than perhaps we would have done three or four years yeah. ago. So in those early days, and probably even longer than the earlier days of all the um, groups that the FMA licensed, the one which yeah. you probably had the most um, pushback from was the financial yeah. advisor group. Yeah. What do you think that was? Was that something to do with the legacy before where, or was, was there something else going on there? Well. It's a, it's a very good question. It was certainly the least happy sector when I arrived, um, which may be because it had gone first mm. into that regulatory setup um, when actually there were other areas of financial services that, that needed to get uh, directly regulated, possibly even more. I, I, I think when any sector pushes back so hard, it's a combination of things. And, uh, and I think it was partly not being convinced that that level of regulation was necessary mm. or, or was going to deliver actually what we wanted mm. to. And the fact that for a lot of advisors, the, the regulation was forcing a re-examination of the business models. Mm. So you weren't just layering on a few additional requirements to mm. a lot of people. You're actually making them fundamentally rethink, you know, how do I get paid for the, yeah. for the work that I do? And, and, you know, that takes a lot of people, particularly in small advice organizations, to a very uncomfortable place very quickly. But then they've had to do it again yes. now, yeah. and, and they're going yeah. through that whole whole issue once more. Yeah. Although I would argue, possibly naively, yeah. <laughs> I would argue that a lot of the AFAs we talk to um, probably aren't finding the, the, the new changes as hard as they would have done because they've already been through the mill of being licensed and authorized, and they kind of understand a bit more yeah. what we're looking for. I think the, the, the trauma that may be being felt by the bit of advice that wasn't regulated before is much more akin to what yeah. how the AFAs felt when I arrived in 2013. Yeah, and your um, speech to the FSC the other day, you were quite complimentary about the AFAs and that they've yeah. done a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. And look, you know, every sector um, has its variances. 
and the financial advice sector is hard for regulators because it's so varied and so big. Mm. So you're, you're dealing with thousands of players rather than 20 or 30. So it's always hard to gauge. But I think our view when we went into Fizzler was that the AFA population you know, had largely made really good progress mm. to where we would have wanted them. And that's partly the code committee and the, mm. and the code, mm. which people took seriously, which is great. And partly um, an acceptance that even though they didn't really want to be licensed by the FMA, that is what the government decided was going to happen and they had to move with it. So um, it gave us some confidence that although it will be hard yards again, mm. we think we can get the rest of the sector there. Yeah. In retrospect and, you know, looking back, do you think, you know, dealing with that financial advisory population first when it came to regulation was the right approach? Or oh. <laughs> I, well, yeah, I have to say on the way in, um, I'd certainly had that thought, mm. which was maybe you should have uh, put this into place for the bigger end of town mm. and, and learn both as a regulator and as, a, as yeah. a government the experience of that before you then go and effectively license thousands and yeah. thousands of people. Yeah. Um, we learned a lot from licensing the AFAs, <laughs> which we then used in managed funds, for instance. Mm. Um, but yeah, in retrospect, I probably would have, you know, if not it would have been our call, but it would have been probably helpful to do it the other way around. Mm, mm. But, but you know, the, the, there was a sense, and as you know, the financial advice sector was being looked at, you know, as early as 2004, mm. 2006. Um, and it was an early mover and being reworked that preceded all the rest of the changes that the FMA went through after the finance company mm. scenario. So, you know, um, it wasn't part of the same design plan, is, I guess is what I'm saying. It was already moving. Yeah, yeah. It was always quite, I've always found it quite interesting because, you know, over all these years out of the AFA population, and, you know, the FADC, the, the disciplinary committee, hasn't actually had a lot of work to do. And that's, and, and you sort of wonder, you know, was there that much risk in that sector as, as people were sort of suggesting? Yeah. Yeah, that's complex. I mean, um, we probably haven't used the FADC as much as we should have done or mm. could have done. And, and part of that was um, a degree of anxiety about how to operate that tribunal from mm. our perspective, you know, what mm. sort of cases to take and how to present them and, and what sort of work you need to do. I think it does also reflect that actually we found relatively few egregious cases mm. um, in, in what we've looked at. Um, and the stuff we've taken to the FADC has tended to be trying to get clarification about exactly what requirements are for AFAs, yes. as opposed to something that black and white, you know, was something that was really so inappropriate. So black and white, like David Ross. And, yeah, and, there's and outliers. That's a clue. Um, yeah. um, but, but I guess those two are good examples of why financial advice is really complicated and why I said what I said mm, on the way in, mm. which is um, you, you want more people to take financial advice mm. initially around investments, because that's where we were designed and going forward it'll be about all sorts of products um, and so a lack of confidence in financial advice has real big reverberations into people you know participating in investment products mm. the share market and all the rest of it mm. and so i guess there is an argument that financial advice is one of the areas you have to go first because if, if you haven't got a financial advice sector that's trusted by people mm. they, they not only won't get advice but but they probably won't make the investments, you know, in the first mm. place, or they won't buy the insurance yeah. that, that they should be buying, or they won't consider the insurance. So it's a massive gateway for financial services. So you, I think you have to have it in the best shape you can so that we can say to people, this is complex, you should get advice. Yeah. So 
How do we make financial advice more affordable when we look across the Tasman and you see the yeah. issues that ASIC's dealing yeah. with? You know, how do we avoid that happening here? Yeah, what well, we it's do? the great dilemma for mm. regulating financial mm. advice mm. in the, you know, in New Zealand in particular, uh, a lot of small financial advice mm. players. And so you're very conscious of the compliance burden going on when the end goal is affordable quality mm. financial advice. Mm. So it's that balance between how do you make it affordable but operating at a sufficiently minimum standard that the regulators, everyone else, can mm. keep saying to people, you should go and get yeah. advice. It's regulated, it's a, a sufficient standard. And there'll be outliers, but it's sufficient standard that you should really do this. So look, honestly, I wish I knew the answer. Yeah. Um, you know, we'll, we'll be pragmatic and proportionate in how we apply the rules, yeah. depending on the size of the firm and the products they're offering. But you know, there does need to be a minimum standard. And, and I think for those individuals or firms who just don't think they can deliver that minimum standard, then they have to think really hard about, do they want to be in a licensed environment? Can you now go out to the public and say, we have confidence in the financial advice sector and you should use an advisor? Well, we do. We do mm. frequently and, tell and people to use, yeah, we, we, we do frequently uh, build into all of our mm. investor materials, you should consider getting mm. financial advice. Like I say, if you look at the AFA piece, mm. Um, that was already authorized and mm. licensed. Yeah, we'd be pretty confident there. Mm. But we've got a big new piece, which is busy rethinking its business model and how they want to operate, yeah. what sort of license to apply mm. for, what products to do. And, and probably we'd be a little bit more wary there just mm. because we don't know enough. We don't have line of sight mm. into mm. that, how that, that part of the industry is operating. But yeah, the end goal has to be yeah. A regulator that really pushes financial So for advice. the whole sector, we're not there yet, but no. for the AFAs, we are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think give or take, give that's or take. what I would say. So, and, and I think Fizzler, for me, hopefully, should deliver a framework within which we would then be able to say, actually, that all of this sector, anyone who calls themselves a financial advisor mm. is subject to this degree of regulation, and we're confident it's moved sufficiently that, yes, we yeah. would be telling you that. So, so so, the AFA population, fine with that. So we've got all these mortgage advisors and life insurance advisors. How do you think, you know, how do you think that world is going to change and, and things like we talked about the FADC before? Yeah. Are we, what are your predictions <laughs> about the outlook for that, those yeah. two groups? That's a good question. I mean, y you would hope that the product providers and the advisors all understand that the world has had to change mm -hmm. and that the degree of regulation has had to go up significantly and we don't want a situation like we had in Australia mm -hmm. um, in the Royal Commission. So I think if, if both the providers, the advisors, the brokers, the intermediaries, whatever terminology you use, are all trying to get to the same place, mm. you know, I am pretty confident that, that we can get there. Mm. But I'm not sure just yet it feels that everyone is putting in the same direction and that that tension between intermediaries and the providers obviously has been the, as it turns out, the biggest issue in the Kofi bill. Um, and so it shows that the way a lot of financial products are sold, getting that dynamic right between the provider and the advisor or the advisor, uh, the provider and the broker is really important. Mm. So we'll come back to conduct a bit later, but it's quite interesting because that relationship between the, the intermediary and the yeah. provider as the bill has developed keeps yeah. changing yeah. from what I can see and, yeah. and and where it's going to land is, is yeah. still a little bit unknown. Yeah, I, I think in, entirely rightly really because 
depending on where you sit, the balance has been shifting backwards and forwards between, you know, what's the duty of the provider, mm. what's the duty of the intermediary, and if they're both regulated, mm. you know, where's the where's, where's the line? Yeah. And the line might get drawn in different places for different organizations, but you know, I think it's entirely fair that that's been the source of a lot of angst because the intermediary universe mm. is going through Fizzler. Mm. And and then to have it accidentally, if you like, reinvented by the Kofi bill, you know, I can see that that was a challenge for a lot of people. But, but you know, from our perspective, what was key was that the providers accepted that yeah. they have a responsibility to their end customers, even if they're not the, they're not making the sale and they're not one generally dealing directly with that customer. But the big friction point at the moment seems to be that the providers are wanting to see more and more of what an advisor is saying to their clients yeah. and and the advisor is saying, this is too much intrusion yeah. into our business. Yeah. What do you say to that? Well, certainly from our perspective, we never had in mind that the providers would effectively control the advisors in that way. There's, mm. a, there's a reason the intermediaries are regulated, right? It's mm. because they should have a framework within which they can do what they need to do yeah. um, and do it right. You know, as I say, our, our drive really was having come across some providers, particularly in the insurance space, mm. who were just saying to us, no, no, our customers are the advisors. Yeah. You know, we, we, we're, not, we're not dealing with the end customer. Mm. And that's unacceptable. Mm. I mean, that, that, you know, everyone I speak to says, yeah, that's unacceptable. But actually, there was a portion of the industry that was willing to tell us that. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe that got over-addressed yeah. in the drafting. So, so, so are you saying that some of the providers are actually going too far now? Well, I think there's a distinct chance of that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen that in other areas that we regulate where, you know, AML being a good example, mm -hmm. where, you know, the the interpretation that says, well, this is what the AML rules require, and then you show that actually that's not what they require. And, oh, it's what the FMA require. And we say, well, that's not what we require. And it's an interpretation yeah. that makes it easier for the law firm or the real estate company or whatever. So that does need to be guarded against. Yes, yeah. um, and definitely in this space, in the early days, we we saw some of the bigger organizations setting up their arrangements with the intermediaries in a way that was being pointed at the rules, but mm. wasn't required by them at all. Mm, mm. Um, and I, I think maybe a few organizations for the sake of ease had overstepped yeah. know, where a sensible line might be drawn. But I've seen a lot of backwards and forwards in the last 18 months that suggest to me maybe that line is is being redrawn. You're seeing it in different sectors. So it seems like the banks are pushing a long way in, and you know the insurance yeah. companies are different, and then yeah. the, the the fund manager KiwiSaver guys are different again as yeah. well. So you have yeah. you have um, three or four different approaches. Yeah, that, that's right, and, mm. and different approaches even within yeah. those sectors. And we have to be careful not to try to interfere in commercial arrangements yeah. between providers and their and their intermediaries. Um, but you know we do tire of being pointed out as the reason it has to be that way when when nothing we or the law has done actually actually sets it up like yeah. that. But that comes back to a point in one of the complaints we hear all the time is people say, well, the FMA tells us this is what we need to do, but they won't tell us how to do it and right. we have to go work it out. Yeah. And and you've, you're saying, well, you know, the world's changed and, and, and yeah. that's the way it is now. Yeah. But, I mean, that's an interesting point about how to regulate, which is a sort of philosophical debate. You know, financial services is too complex mm. to regulate on the basis of not only will the law set out the outcomes you're supposed to get mm. to, 
but the regulator is going to tell you exactly how you get there. Mm. And we're hearing that in other areas mm. too. Climate-related disclosures is the most recent one. And I just think that's a bad place to be. I think I think the regulator isn't necessarily going to be able to, to do that in a way which accepts the differences in business models. And actually that stuff gets out yeah. of date incredibly quickly. Yeah. And so I am a big believer in, in agreeing the outcomes and giving some guidance about how you might mm. get there, but not being incredibly prescriptive. But it does leave a lot of people in a grey area. Yeah, and you were saying the other day that you know the days of um, black and white um, prescriptive legislation have gone. So yeah, so I spent you know a lot of time working at a US organisation in the states, and you think of you know Dodd Frank, the Volcker Rule, Sarbanes Oxley. You know the mm. American mm. attempt was to write twenty thousand pages of legislation because they were trying to to safeguard against every possible end run around yeah. them. And, and actually it becomes really unmanageable mm. uh, and, and small businesses can't navigate it. So the American model, you know, certainly as it was, which I have experience of, you know, just can't work, yeah. so particularly for retail financial services. But, but the principles-based regulation is tough mm. because you know, the number of arguments we've had about what is a fair outcome, what is a good outcome, what is the best outcome, yeah. what is best interest, you know, it's fuzzy yeah. uh, and it makes it difficult. But it's, I still believe that that's the best legislative approach for financial services. Yeah. So we ran a story the other day where a, a, a retiring bank chief executive was basically saying, you know, there's too much regulation, we're spending too much time on all this stuff and we're not having time to innovate and do things for our customers. What do you say to his comments? <laughs> I don't have a lot of sympathy, to be perfectly honest. Look, you know, if you think about ComCom, Reserve Bank, FMA, mm. money laundering, health and safety, you name it, we, we totally get that the mm. overall burden of regulation is intense for the industry and, and probably needs some degree of, of, of phasing so that it doesn't all come at once. But, you know, particularly for the bigger end of town, where I have less sympathy is that um, the type of innovation we have tended to see in that industry has been how can we devise more products that we can sell to more people for more money yeah. and everything they have done before that date just gets pushed off into a corner and mm. left to operate and a lot of a lot of the product design product development um, the methods by which products are sold needs constant attention in banking mm. so yes I, I hear the point about regulation mm. but you know in the work we did in the conduct to culture reviews, mm. We just didn't see anywhere near enough attention to what you're already doing. Mm, mm. You know, by all means, be innovative. That's mm. great. We want an innovative financial mm. sector, but actually, set and forget for the products that you've got, particularly the long-term products. You know, that's a real problem for financial services. Mm. And you know, we are shaking the banks and the insurers by the lapels to say, you know, before you come up with the next sexy thing, yeah. have you looked at what you sold 15 years ago and you sure that's still performing for the client? Yeah. And if it isn't, you know, can that be fixed? Mm. Should it be fixed? Mm. Or is that just, you know, commercial reality? So the big end of town has had a, a lot of commentary around it. And I reading through some of the comments you have made recently, it seems like they haven't, they certainly didn't come on board um, quick enough with what you were wanting to do, yeah. and maybe they're still not as on board yeah, as they should patchy. be at the moment. It's it's yeah. pretty patchy, and 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 again, it, it is slightly difficult because we are moving the goalposts. Mm. Um, but is that a slightly arrogant attitude from them? Uh, yeah, I, I I think it is. Um, 
you know, and again, to be balanced, mm. um, bits of those sectors aren't yet mm. regulated directly by us. Mm. They're not licensed by us. They're not, we might have some regulatory reach. Um, but, but, you know, I came here from the UK where admitting you worked in financial services would get you thrown out of, you know, the hairdressers <laughs> or the taxi or, or stopped at the border and taken off for an intimate search. Um, and the damage done to trust in financial services in the UK and then in the Royal Commission in Australia was immense. Mm. And I do get frustrated where I think the industry in New Zealand is not looking at mm. very comparable countries in terms of the sorts of products sold, mm. the way they're regulated, you know, lots of linkage and not, not feeling like it's on fire that they need to fix a lot of stuff really soon. Mm. And, and, I, and I do think if the Royal Commission hadn't happened and it gave us the platform with the Reserve Bank to, to go in and poke about. Um, I think the pace of change would have been glacial. Mm, mm. Um, as but, it is, I think we've got a platform to, to really push much harder at change in that end of the industry. The Royal Commission on Australia created an opportunity for you, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to break the conversation that we'd had with the AFAs, mm. that we'd had with MIS schemes and derivatives issuers and the mm. people licensed, to the rest of the industry and say, this is you too. Mm. And actually... But they didn't get that at the time, did they? I, look, I think when you talked to the yeah. boards, they seemed to get it. But when you asked what data are you seeing, mm. what are your complaints data you're looking at, mm. you know, what outcomes do you think you're delivering, Just there just seemed to be uh, a sense that it, it, it couldn't really happen here. Mm. And, and we couldn't for the life of us work out why it couldn't happen yeah. here. Yeah. Um, smaller scale, smaller industry, more community-minded. Yeah, loads of reasons it might not be as bad. Mm. Might not be as bad. But loads of reasons why it could happen. Oh, they all said, oh, we're different to Australia. Yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. So, 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 the, so the, the conduct and culture reviews was Adrian Orr saying, okay, you seem very confident, yeah. but we need to take a quick look. Mm. And, mm. and at some point, as we are now, a longer look mm. to see if we think you've got a basis for saying that. And, and you know, it, it, what we saw wasn't a horror show, but you could see all the signs mm. there of an industry that wasn't focusing on what it had already sold to its customers. Do we still have a risk that we could get into that Australian situation in New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm, mm. Definitely. I mean, I, and I'm not saying this to, to try and pitch the FMA's game. Um, <laughs> because New Zealand is a smaller place and it's very interrelated, mm. it, it won't take more than one or two, you know, sizable issues out of the industry to, I don't know about irreparably, but long-term damage the standing of the industry yeah. and the regulators. So, if, you know, when I got here, everyone talks about the 87 crash. When I arrived, we were still doing the tidy up from the finance companies. Um, it's not like the US or the UK where one or two blow-ups probably don't really hit most people's radar mm. screens. You know, one or two blow-ups here, you know, whether it's in advice or insurance or banking or KiwiSaver, will set things back dramatically. So, so we're one or two fires away from yeah, going a royal backwards? commission or a whole new set of yeah. very prescriptive regulation. Yeah. Do you think the industry as a whole gets that? Uh, more so today than say pre-Australian royal commission. Yeah. So, so not not as much as I'd like. Mm. Um, definitely. Mm. And, you know, we, we've been quite pointed with you know, a number of the organizations that we've been talking mm. to about the need to really um, commit the resources to change. But, you know, certainly an improvement from 
before we did the Connaughts and Culture mm. Reviews, where the licensed firms kind of got it. Yeah. But actually, the bits that weren't licensed were just, yeah, yeah, you know, you focus on KiwiSaver, mate, we'll be fine here. Yeah. And I think that has started to change. Yeah. So I was thinking you could be called, you know, Captain Conduct. <laughs> <laughs> I've been called worse. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, yeah. going right back to that yeah. first public speech yeah. you made, you talked about conduct. Yeah. And it's really interesting when I go back and I think about all the stuff over the years. And, and it seems to me is it's only in the last few years yeah. that this whole idea and concept of conduct has really started to come into the vernacular and, and be taken seriously. Yeah. Why do you think it's taken so long? Uh, so I look back to the first speech and, you know, culture, conduct, you know, compliance, looking after the customer. You know, I, I thought I was trotting out a bunch of concepts and approaches that everyone was already on top of. And I was just reinforcing what the FMA was here to do. As I look back now, and I realized that, you know, with the experience I'd had in the UK, mm. that actually everyone was nodding, mm. but, but a lot of people didn't appreciate the hard work that has to happen to make all those things happen. And, I, you know, a combination of licensing of some sectors and the Royal Commission and then the Conduct and Culture Reviews you know, gave it a real kick mm, up the arse. Mm. I, I don't know where we'd have been, honestly, without mm. without that, because, um, you know, a lot of organizations we've looked at in the last couple of years don't even seem to have fully woken up now. Yeah. So, you know, I, I slightly you. despair where it would have been yeah. if the bonfire in, in Australia hadn't, hadn't lit. Yeah, so that must worry you. Yeah, it, well, it, it's reinforced my sense mm. And certainly the sense out there with my staff that actually um, the regulator does need to be, you know, very, very engaged with the industry mm. and able to discern where sort of culturally behaviors are starting to slip. Mm. So we're still in the kind of build mm. influencing phase. Um, but I believe very passionately once that's done, you actually have to keep going because I think the finance industry has got very short memories. and. I think it would slip remarkably quickly. And so I'm less confident now than I was when I started that 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 you effectively can leave it to the industry. Yeah. But but you're, that's true. It's the finance industry does have a short memory, but the clients who get burned, whether it's finance yeah. companies, the 1987 yeah. share market, they never forget. Yeah. yeah. The, 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 one of the problems I perceive in finance as a whole is the ability to... to distinguish what went wrong over there from what you do. Mm. Say, oh, well, that was different. That was mm. finance companies. They weren't banks. They weren't regulated like us, mm. you know, or that was, you know, over here, we, we don't do that. And and actually what we've been pushing at is, yeah, but the incentives that led to that happening or the poor disclosure that led to those people not understanding the risk they were taking or, or whatever the, 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 the thread is, is exactly the mm. same mm. right across the industry. Mm. And so... Well, that's finance companies. That would never have happened mm. here. And I says, well, that's just nonsense. Yeah. It could easily have happened in a whole bunch of different places. Well, over my experience over the years, we go through these cycles and it's always the same things, just different products. Yeah. 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 So the people, I'm not sure this is completely true, but I like to argue that, you know, people are largely the same wherever you go. Mm. So whether you're buying a financial product or you're selling one mm. or advising on one, the, the behaviors and what 
changes those behaviors are largely the same, mm. which is why we went so hard on incentives, mm. you know, which is what's caused a lot of the tension with the, sure. with the financial advice industry, because mm. the way it's set up is they're entirely, you know, they're selling on commission effectively. Mm. So, you know, I'm a passionate believer that most of what goes wrong in financial services um, is, or a lot of what goes wrong is driven by really poorly designed incentives that don't get evolved and adapted as you learn how the end users are using those products and the people who are selling them are selling them. And, and you know, I learned from payment protection insurance in the UK, which, you know, I wasn't involved in. Um, no one stopped to say, why was a product that's supposed to be making us 50 million pounds a year, making us 500 million pounds a year? And why are we selling it to this many people when our product design said we would be selling it to this many people? And they just thought it's because they were cleverer than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're 50 billion pounds down in remediation and fines. Yeah. So it, it was, again, another lesson for me when I came here, which was if you don't stop and think about why are we doing so well here, you're probably missing something that could be done a lot better. Mm. And mm. and again, a lot of great people working in financial services, a lot of the instincts are, are great, but but organizations need to be constantly thinking through, you know, could we do this better? And maybe that product over there that's that's been generating income for years, maybe in a very low interest rate environment, we shouldn't be selling that mm. Mm. product. But, you know, should they not at least but, think but about that? that's the question that you're wanting them through conduct to ask yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah. And, and ideally, the regulator shouldn't have to be always the one asking mm, the questions. Mm, mm. But what we've been trying to encourage boards and management is that if you can show us you're asking those questions and that you're trying to do something off the back of them, we're likely to turn our attention to the next lot. Mm. But there, there's still, you know, there's still a few places where I, I, I hope the intention is right. I think it is. Mm. But understanding what it takes to drive that into your product design and your product sales and all the rest of it, you know, just it's going to need a lot of commitment. Mm. So sticking with conduct, mm. so how far through this journey are we? <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, um, it does depend on which sector you're talking mm. about. And obviously, even within the sectors, there's some changes. Um, so, for instance, the banks most of whom are foreign owned and therefore have seen some of what goes on mm. elsewhere. Although I think they were very slow to realize mm. that it could happen here, which is weird, really. Mm. Um, you know, th they were all pretty alarmed by the Royal Commission mm. and the prospect of, of that sort of bonfire happening here. And I would say they've made reasonably good progress. Mm. Um, the AFA sector, as I said before, was actually further along already mm. than most of those sectors. Bits of insurance actually have done really well, particularly so can those... You life in general? Yeah, well, well, of course, we had turned our attention yeah. to life earlier. Mm. Um, so they've got a reason to be further along. Mm. But still, the business model is quite challenged because the intermediary piece is really critical in the life insurance piece. I think the rest of insurance, you know, we've given them the hurry up recently. And, and as I say, I accept that we're moving the goalposts, or the government's mm. moving the goalposts at our suggestion. Um, and that actually the Kofi bill is some way off passing. But at the pace they're currently moving, they won't be ready. Yeah, yeah. And there's no reason not to be ready. Right? We've had years now of conduct stuff coming out of the FMA, the Royal mm. Commission, that there's no excuse for not being ready once that Kofi bill becomes law and comes into effect. So yeah. what we're saying to the industry is you actually really need to pivot here. You actually really need to focus on this. 
So, so the recent report on general insurance was pretty scathing. Yeah. And so when you look at what's happening in that general insurance space and then you look at all these things like these payday lenders and yeah. these trucks which go around South Auckland and stuff, which are the, pe- the sorts of organisations which are likely to do the most financial harm to probably the most vulnerable part of the population. Why has that, it seems that's been left right to the end when it probably should have been up the front. Why, why well, was that? Well, I, I, I guess I should point out that the, the I'm going to call it the credit stuff, because <coughs> by now pay later will tell you they're not a credit product when they quite blatantly yeah. are, um, you know, sits elsewhere. So yes. Comcom and, and the government are looking at buy now pay later, and I'm sure that's going to get pulled into the regulatory net one way or the other. Mm. And rightly so, because it should be. I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. I'm just saying it should be treated for what it is. So, so that piece, you know, is getting looked at, but wasn't pulled into the piece that, mm. that we've got. Um, but, the, so, but, but then again, you know, you're talking the other day, you know, you went out and did the Section 25s from the banks and the insurers and they weren't part of your agreement, yeah. but you, yeah. the organisation had the courage to go and do that. Yeah. You know, maybe it should have happened in some of these other areas? Yeah, yeah possibly. Um, I think it is one, though, where um, it was fairly clear to us mm. when we pushed at the Council of Financial Regulators, for instance, to have that conversation mm. about what is this emerging mm. product and how do we feel about it? Mm. And if it needs to be regulated, where mm. where would it fit mm. in the horizon? And, and Treasury and Ambia are at that table. Mm. And the clear conclusion was, if it needs to be more firmly pulled into the net, it is in credit. Mm. And mm. the credit stuff sits and with Comcom. Yeah. And that is where it will go. Yes, yeah. Um, but mm. yeah, look, back to insurance. Uh, again, you know, there were some organisations that were where we'd hoped them to mm. be, or pretty close. Mm. Um, there were some organisations a long, long way off mm. and and who got pretty chippy when we told them we thought they were a long way off mm. and mm. even more chippy when we told them we were going to put out a report that said the sector as a whole was a long way off. Um, and again, I accept that we are roughing them up mm. to try and get them to where they need to be quicker mm. and that in some cases we're, we're testing them against standards that no yeah. one's ever given them. But again, I get impatient because mm. I think if you paid any attention to the Royal Commission in Australia, mm. you paid attention to the, some of the insurance stuff in the UK mm. or the US, you, you should have been moving mm. some time ago. Mm. And it shouldn't have needed the regulator mm. to mm. come and poke you. And, and I do get frustrated when you know our conduct guide back in early 2017 mm. and the AFA Code of Conduct, actually, whilst I'm at it, sets out a pretty clear yeah. framework for mm. what conduct ought to mm. look like. Mm. And yet, parts of the industry, well, well, you don't license us, and we didn't, you know, no, we we didn't do anything. And it comes back to the sort of arrogance yeah. thing again, doesn't it? It's well, you know, and and people are busy, and you know, these are complex times, and it just hasn't been sufficiently up their list of priorities mm. to stop mm. and go back and and rethink, and you know, it it will challenge the business models of some of those players, mm. and that's that's emotionally sometimes a tough thing for management who are very invested in the current business model to do. Yeah. And sticking with conduct, so so you're a bit disappointed that the Kofi bill hasn't got through Parliament? Well, well <laughs> keeps slipping yeah, down I, am, I am disappointed, you know, selfishly, because when I thought about when might be a good time to hand mm. the FMA over mm. to someone else, I thought actually the passing of the Kofi bill would be a perfect, mm. perfect time, because there's a big build for us, mm. you know, off the back of that. Um, and I didn't think I'd be here to see the finish of it. Uh, and also, um, you know, the conversations we're having with the insurance sector, with the banks, um, feel more meaningful to them, I think, mm. if they think 
the legislation is about to pass mm, mm. and the provisions in that legislation are going to be in effect in, say, a year's time. And I worry a little bit, and I've expressed this to ministers, that we might lose momentum. Yes. Um, but, you know, the government's committed to getting it passed. I think, subject to the intermediaries piece, you know, the, the obligations on, on the product providers, the banks and insurers are, pr are pretty mm. pretty nailed in. So you're happy with the bill, which is before Parliament? Yeah, happy enough. Yeah, Happy enough? Yeah. Anything you'd change? Yeah. Um, no, well, <laughs> you'd always you'd always change the drafting a bit, but no, I think it I think yeah. it I think it it does what it needed to do. Yeah, um, it leaves a lot for us mm. in terms of interpretation and guidance and engagement and all the rest of it. But you know that's the model we've built ourselves on. So yeah, um, yeah we're up for that. Yeah. You made a comment the other day, and it said, "I regard that legislation as." the plugging of an industry-sized hole, in fact, two industry-sized holes in New Zealand's conduct regulation. Can you explain yeah. that to me, what you're yeah. saying now? Yeah, so so when I look back in hindsight, mm. um, you look at the Financial Advisor Act, the FMC Act, it was recasting an investment product-focused regulatory regime mm. that the Securities Commission had had, for instance. And, and that's not uncommon, <laughs> but it left out retail mm. banking, credit, mm. insurance. And if you look at all of the investment regulators out of the UK, Australia, the US, all the kind of like-minded regulation in terms of twin peak regulation, they started with investments and then morphed into consumer finance, mm. retail financial products, and eventually credit, which mm. was usually the thing that broke them. Um, <laughs> and so from an investment perspective, the Capital Markets Development Task Force and then the FMC Act did a great job, mm. I thought, but increasingly, I began to realize, if you look back at my first speech, mm. that actually some of the people I was preaching to weren't going to be <laughs> regulated on the FMC Act. <laughs> so um, by the time we got to the Royal Commission, we were already asking ourselves, mm. how, do we, you know, how do we reach into the bits that we get the occasional complaint about? And we look at the FMC Act and say, mm. well, we don't, we, don't, we don't actually think that's our remit, but we couldn't find anyone else mm. whose remit it was. Mm -hmm. And so in hindsight, the FMC Act did a really good job on the investment side, but it, it, it didn't even aspire to touch mm. banking and insurance. And the rest of the world, Wells Fargo, Lloyds Bank, you know, the stuff in Australia was focused on, you know, the end users of core financial products. Mm. Mm. And they'd moved on from the investment piece mm. that was already regulated. Mm. So, you know, I think it was just a, you know, a factor of the time that the FMC Act was was written in, which was post-finance company crisis, all about disclosure, all about offers, all about investment advice and exchanges. And it, it in retrospect, mm. it was already a big piece of legislation. Mm. It, it missed an opportunity to say, actually anyone selling a financial mm. service or a product is caught. Yes, yeah, yeah, um, that makes sense. So talking about regulation and, and, and general, you know, and again, you made this comment, I do worry about the balance I have seen regulators who've got the balance completely wrong on the enforcement side as a result. And you've sort of said before that it's it's really hard for a regulator to get it right all the time. Yeah. Yeah. How, how, you know, how does that play out in the role of an organisation like this? Yeah, well, it's, it is, you know, it is a challenging thing to get the balance right between guidance and influence and engagement mm. and nudging mm. to using the stick. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes the stick is just public criticism. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the stick will be taken to court. And so you you have to be resourceful and willing to use the enforcement for the rest of it to happen. Mm -hmm. So without a doubt, 
you know, and, and we're not in any way casual about this, but on occasion, you know, we'll make a decision, you know, this this looks really poor conduct and we ought to go after this, mm-hmm. even if we're not sure we'll win or, um, you know, maybe maybe this outfit just got unlucky and they came across our radar screen at a time when mm-hmm. we felt a signal mm-hmm. needed to mm-hmm. be sent. Um, your preference would be to use the carrot and mm. the encouragement. Mm. You know, all the behavioural scientists will tell you when you're talking about your kids, it's it's four times carrot, one times stick. Um, but the stick has to hurt. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we agonise a lot on which product and sector are we talking about? Mm. How far should we expect them to be along this curve? Mm. And um, depending on the area, we may be more or less patient. So, for instance, on AML, we expressed a couple of years back, Mm. we signaled, okay, it's been in place for a while now. You know, we are still seeing organizations that haven't really done anything close to what they ought to be doing. Mm. And and those ones, you know, they may get shot at. Mm. Whereas three years ago, we probably would have written them a polite letter to say, you do know, don't you, you're supposed to do this. So it will vary depending on the bit of the sector we're talking to, just how impatient we're getting. But, you know, we have got impatient with a couple of the big banks and insurers mm. off the back of the conduct and culture reviews where stuff we saw we didn't much like. We went off and formally investigated it. It takes time and AIA, ANZ, you're in court at the moment. Um, and there's a few more of those still to come. Yeah. So so when the FMA decides to take legal action, enforcement action, it's, yeah. it's pretty serious. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a toss up. But well, particularly now, right, with the pressure the courts are under, un, under COVID, you know, you are also trying to balance what impact are we trying to have and how soon? Because mm. if we're trying to have an impact today, waiting three or four years, it's, you know, may not be the right option. Yeah. Now you may do both. Mm. You may find a way of going out now on an industry-wide basis mm. and roughing some people up and taking the individual organizations to court, which will take, you know, usually months, almost, well, almost very actually years before it even gets public, yeah. let alone, you know, to court. So, you know, one of the pieces of analysis we always do is how quickly do we need to get a message out? Mm. And is there enough here that we can get a more general message out? Mm. Or, or do we need to look at what's happened here, go and see if we can see it more generally, and if we can put a report out? Um, or, or do we need to pull the trigger straight away with mm. that organization we're talking to, mm. to make sure everyone understands what you're looking at? So I always use as an example here, the Mark Warmager Milford case from the market manipulation. Mm. You know, one of the, and we knew if we went to court, that would be complex. It would probably get appealed. You know, and as it turned out, that's what happened. So it was years before yeah. we got an outcome. But we needed to say to the MIS sector, who were about to go mm. into the licensing stuff under the FMC Act, hey, if the lack of controls and processes we see here are replicated across the rest of you, none of you will get licenses. Mm, mm. So you need to wake so up So it's a pretty strong message. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it worked. Yeah. But it's tough. It's it's not easy. Well, that was a tough one, yeah. Yeah. And it would have been long and... Yeah. Well, it was long anyway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't remember when that the, the court proceedings finished because, you know, Mark Warman did appeal, but I think it was a good three years mm, mm. from start to finish mm. before we were done mm. with all the appeals. Yeah. So you once said to me that it's often hard for the regulator to get it right all the time. Mm. So how often do you get it right? <laughs> well, I wish I knew. I mean, one of the one of the challenges with regulating financial services is that the the end outcome is often so far down the line mm. that everyone's moved on to other stuff mm. by the time you get there. So um, asking ourselves, mm. does all this regulation help? Mm. Are the things that we're doing delivering outcomes? Um, we're never 
quite sure. We're not mm. as sure as we'd like to be. Mm. Um, but part of the reason we do these things like the conduct to culture reviews and the thematic reviews is to try and at least hear from boards and management and staff what they're doing differently today mm. than they were doing differently before mm. and trying to work out which of the levers we pulled mm. have triggered that change in behavior mm. Mm. and keep pulling those levers. So, yeah. And yeah. which of the levers we pulled has everyone yeah. just ignored? Firing blanks. And we yeah. just yeah, and we yeah. just leave them. And you know, that that's about growing up as a supervisory conduct regulator mm. and trying to work out what works and what doesn't. Mm. And you know, again, we're significantly more advanced today than we were when I started, but you know, there's a lot more of that yeah. that awareness to build. Yeah. So, what are you most proud of under your your time here? <laughs> um, very dangerous, dangerous to answer that question without looking <laughs> smug. Um, I think I would say the confidence that I see in the organisation today to get involved in areas where the black letter of the law doesn't make really clear mm. either whether we we should get involved or or exactly what's required but we see a role for us to influence and engage and possibly even you know criticize mm. the public and you know i think part of that was born out of the conduct of culture reviews mm -hmm. where we stepped into a space that you know arguably we didn't own mm. we didn't license those organizations we didn't know much about them mm. away from the product areas we did license um and we're active on so many fronts now mm. um and that's challenging for the organization but what i see is a level of confidence that um if we've thought it through properly and we've tested it and spoken to people you know there's probably not a, an obvious right or wrong here mm. and if we're confident of the grounds on which we've operated um a bit of criticism you know you have to take the rough with the smooth yeah. whereas the organization i joined brand new very very sensitive to its reputation and its credibility mm. and anything that led to us being criticized might have been felt to suggest we got it wrong. Mm. And without going too far down mm. that line, um, you have to have the courage of your convictions. And, yeah. and you know, what I see in the organization is that that, that exists. Mm. So is there anything you wish you'd pushed harder on? Um, well, there's a few that got away, <laughs> which I won't say I can't name. Um, well, I, this is going to sound strange. We got lucky in a way with the Royal Commission mm. because, you know, the stuff that I thought everybody got mm. when I arrived here, it turns out they didn't. Mm. And the Royal Commission and therefore the Conduct to Culture Reviews and the help of the Reserve Bank kind of getting us in those doors mm. has started to generate the change mm. that I would have expected to have come mm. earlier. Mm. So I think you know, we were a couple of years behind where I would have expected to be at that point, as it turns out. Mm. But I think we've recovered that ground. So mm. I think it, it's the confidence. Mm. It's the confidence to wade in in a few places where we might not be welcome and we might not even have the ability to say, look, the legislation says we have to do this. So this mm. is why we're doing it. Mm. I think and that's different from the organization I joined just as a natural growth. And are, are there things where the FMA has gone too far? And I mean, you know, DIMS was the one which came to my mind when I thought about it. Um, oh, undoubtedly there will yeah, be. Yeah. Um, you know, we, as I say, we don't get everything right, yeah. and sometimes our enthusiasm for you know requiring things possibly oversteps that line mm. I talked about earlier yeah. about actually it's all about the outcomes that matters. Mm. Um, but mostly that's born out of still learning how the sectors we regulate operate and mm. what works and what doesn't work, and you know that that 
that's a big challenge for us as we get broader and broader to, to, to learn on all those fronts. Which was one of my other questions is, you know, you seem to be getting more and more things. You've now got um, climate yeah. um, disclosure. Yeah. You know, is the organisation sufficiently resourced to hmm. do well, we, to, to do the we, we have just put out a quite a big funding yeah. bid. Um, listen, you can tailor your regulatory work to the resources you've got. Hmm. What we've said to the government is the level at which we're currently funded for the rest of our operations is about right, because hmm. we only did a funding bid a couple of years ago. Hmm. If you want us to replicate that level of engagement and awareness and dialogue in these other sectors, then this is what hmm. would, it would need to be done. So I think if, if we get that funding, we'll be properly resourced. Yeah, look, I, I, financial resource actually at the moment isn't the big issue for us. It's finding the people, particularly with borders closed, yeah. and all of the industry hiring people, mm. mostly because we in ComCom and RP are <laughs> pushing them. You know, the, the, the capability build, you talked about mm. climate-related disclosures, mm. the, the capability build mm. we need to do to regulate well, mm. you know, that's quite intimidating. Mm. And at the moment, you know, it, it's it's... You know, there's fewer people available because everyone's trying to hire the same people mm. and the borders are closed. Um, and those people can demand, oh, you know, yeah. packages that we can't necessarily exactly. pay. So, um, look, you know, I hope we, we get what we ask for in the funding. Mm. The, the challenge will be just how quickly we can build that capability. Yeah. And I suspect it will be slower than we would like. And, you know, that's, um, you know, that's difficult. Mm. So KiwiSaver, a couple of quick questions mm. on KiwiSaver. Yeah. Can you explain to me you know, we talk yeah. about this all the time, value for yeah. money for fees. Yeah. You know, I wrote a piece the other day when I tried to sort of work out from my KiwiSaver yeah. provider if I'm getting value and, and yeah. I, I don't know the answer. Yeah, look, look, it, it is a difficult topic. What we were trying to do with value for money is acknowledge that it's not all about fees. Mm. And you and I have had this mm. argument before. Um, discussion. Because, um, <laughs> because, you know, bits of the industry will say, you may not mean it, but what you're driving is a low-cost, passive, index-hugging mm. model, and that can't be good if that's all that exists. Mm. And that's absolutely right. And we're also trying to acknowledge that for a lot of people, the difference between 50 basis points and 60 basis points or 75 basis mm. points, it's not registering in their decision-making. No. A whole bunch of other things are registering in their decision-making, mm. and, and sometimes it's been a challenge to work out what. But increasingly, it's about uh, what are you invested in? What disclosures can you give me about what you're invested in? Um, what data do you give me? Mm. Um, what transparency I've got to what you're trying to do with my KiwiSaver mm. fund and what you're actually doing. So value for money was an attempt to say, yes, it's partly about fees and, and returns. Mm. Of course it is. Mm. It has to be. But actually, for not all investors, by any stretch of the imagination, are we seeing that that's the driving, mm. that's the driving force. Uh, actually, at the moment, more of the driving force is the climate and ESG factors that everyone is talking about. And mm -hmm. so we worry about greenwashing and are you really delivering what you said you've delivered? So value for money was an attempt to say, we're frustrated about fees. And so we are going to push hard on fees, mm. but it's not only about fees. Yeah. And so, your value for money may be different from mine. Well, exactly. So the fees thing's interesting because, you know, um, obviously the FMA is not happy. Um, you don't have the ability to regulate around fees. Is that something that you should have? The FMA should have. Well, I'd be I'd be wary because I don't know we'd be any better at setting fees mm. than anybody else. Mm. And actually, setting fees I think is a slightly dangerous place to be. Um, so no, we haven't pushed for that. Mm. Um, what we've done instead is make a lot of noise about 
we're not quite sure what level fees should be, but we're pretty sure they should be lower than where they are. Um, and actually, the government took the same approach during yeah. the default provider review. So, you know, there was some commonality of view there. So, yeah, it's frustrating sometimes to push at something where mm. you actually don't have the ability to say exactly what you think good looks mm. like. Mm. Um, but we have seen fees start to move. Mm. So I think I think the noise has had some impact at least. So, so you do think that your noises have had some impact yeah. on, on, on yeah. fees? Well, maybe we flatter ourselves, but we do. Yeah. We do think that, you know, from some of the providers we've talked to, you know, abandoning management fees or administration fees or debating with us what what their fee structure mm. looks like and what's reasonable and not reasonable. Um, you know, and we have seen movements down by mm. some of the bigger players. So um, I think we've had an impact, mm. but, you know, so but have you the low-cost providers. Impact? Yeah. 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 So uh, fees should be lower. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, now, that doesn't mean every fund has to have the same fee no. or that even every fund has to have a low fee. But where you're charging a higher fee, you value for money, you need to explain, well, why, why? would I pay more here? Yes. Yeah. And, and some of the better performing funds after fees mm. have been reasonably mm. expensive. Mm. So we're not saying you can't charge high fees. But mm. what we're saying is if you've got a passive low cost kind of index hugging approach, yeah and you're not delivering spectacular returns, why are your fees yeah. at the top end of the range? Mm. And, and, and maybe there's a good reason. Yeah. But if you've well, not asked the question, and you can't show us that you and mm. your supervisor debate that on mm. a regular basis, mm. then we don't think you're paying enough attention. Mm. And so going back, you know, there was a great um, KiwiSaver land grab early on, and, and the banks managed to hoover up most of the market. Do, do you think that was right? I mean, it seemed as though they were you know, getting away with things that advisors mm. couldn't do. Well, I, I don't know at the time that it was right, but, but one of the impacts of leaving it there for so long mm. was that, you know, you built up these enormous, mm. you know, balances of funds under management and collections of customers, you know, in the big organizations that didn't seem sufficiently incentivized to be creative and innovative. Mm. And I do think when the government did its default provider review, you know, they seem to have been looking for a better balance between smaller, more innovative mm. players and, and the bigger players mm. that have the resource. I suspect at the time, mm. I may be wrong, there was a sense these players have the experience and the resource and the technology to get this thing off the ground. Mm. I think it's a shame, given the markets we've been in, it took you know such a long period before I actually got recast a bit. Mm. Mm. Um, but I think it, it's in a more balanced shape now, mm. I would say, at least at the default provider level. Yeah. Yeah, and just finally, leadership in the industry is something you've mm. talked about. How do you how do you see leadership in the industry at the moment in financial services? Um, well, again, it varies. Um, I think a couple of the industry associations have done a really good job mm. of bringing people to the table and putting aside their firm specific hats or their mm. their entity specific hats and asking how do we present ourselves best to the customers? Mm. Forget the regulators, mm. the customers. So I think a couple of the industry associations have, have been the channel through which some of the leadership's gone. Mm. But I also think in a couple of them, you know, the industry is not quite ready for the industry association to, to lead in that way. And, and therefore, it's going to be incumbent on them mm. you know, to lead themselves. So um, I think the boards have definitely moved in the right direction. I think some of the management teams, and you know, you've seen a reasonable amount of turnover in the last few years, just need to understand expectations have changed, mm. and not just ours, but the public. Mm. And the more we tell public what they have a right to expect, the more the industry is going to be forced to react to, mm. to those demands. So 
I think it's changing, but um, yeah, it's 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 difficult to get all of the players in a sector to pull in the same direction because almost always someone's business model mm. actually suits them better just doing it slightly differently. Mm. Um, and so you get that fragmentation very quickly. But yeah, I, I keep telling the leadership of the industry that you know they are the influencers. Mm. And if they're not, they shouldn't be in the jobs. Mm. And part of the influence is to make it more customer oriented and, and for that not to just to be a glib paint it on mm. the wall thing, but actually how people get rewarded and promoted. And, and it's the leaders that can drive that. Mm -hmm. No, thank you for that. We'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. I know that um, you're showing great leadership here at the FMA and, and the organisation oh. certainly changed um, over the years you've been here and, and all the best for the future. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, Phil. All right. Thank you.